The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Please turn with me to Colossians 1, 24 through 29. You and I as Christians know intellectually that joy in our life is not dependent on our circumstances, right? And yet I struggle daily with discouragement from one area in my life, and it robs me of my joy. Paul had good reason to be discouraged. He was laboring to the point of exhaustion. He was suffering physically, and he was keeping his ministry to the, the responsibilities of his ministry to the church going, and he was doing all of this while he was under house arrest. And yet he rejoiced. How did Paul do it? Can we do it? Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister. I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, I join, we all join with my brother Frank in asking you to illuminate these words to us so that they will transform our lives and glorify you, Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Paul is writing to people he's never met face to face. Luke never mentions the Colossian church in Acts. And it seems from chapter 2, verse 1 of Colossians that Paul never made it there. The church was founded by a co-worker of his, Epaphras, and it is he who brings the good news to Paul of the Colossians' faith in Christ and also the bad news to Paul that the Colossians are being distracted by ideas from the world. To this point in chapter 1, we've seen Paul shaping his response, focusing his readers on the sole supremacy of Christ. In verses 16 and 17, he writes, 
For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him, and in him, and he is before all the things, and in him all things hold together. Then Paul writes, pointing out that Christ not only is dominating the created order, but in verse 18, he's head of the church. He also is head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. And then he goes from the created order to the church corporately, to the Colossian church, and he says it was Christ in verses 21 and 22 who through his cross reconciled the Colossians to God. And then lastly in verse 23, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Christ pours out unto Paul himself. Paul is suffering, Paul is laboring, Paul is ministering for the Colossians for a purpose. It was there in verse 28 and 29, that of maturing them in their faith. You and I have opportunities to suffer, to minister, to labor in Christ's name and for his church. But we, just as the Colossians did, have a problem. Diverted by an endless array of distractions that the world offers us, we too often do not fulfill the purposes that God had intended. We believe that our purposeful and if we are, our, our labor is purposeful and effective because we're talented or well-organized, or intelligent, or diligent. Make up any list you want. It doesn't make any difference. We forget that even when we employ all manner of positive traits to achieve a task, we come up short of God's standard, period. And that's because His standard is a purpose perfectly fulfilled. So we have Paul rejoicing in his suffering, revealing ministries in his ministry, revealing mysteries in his ministry, and mentoring people to maturity in the faith. All purposes of God. What a standard he sets. How does Paul do it? Can the Colossians do it? Can we do it? The last six verses of Colossians 1 make clear through Paul as an example that it is not only salvation that comes by grace alone. It is the grace of Christ's endurance that enables Paul to bear suffering. It is with grace of Christ's stewardship that Paul ministers. It is by grace of Christ's energy that he labors. The purposes of God can and will be achieved by grace alone. In other words, it's all about grace. 
let's look at how Paul sets an example concerning his, his suffering. Someone has said that God has one son who is without sin, but he has no sons without suffering. Paul was somewhat of an expert in suffering. He endured daily a chronic ailment. We find that in, in 2 Corinthians 11, the famous thorn in the flesh. He endured, <clears throat> or he was beaten several times within an inch of his life. He'd been without food, without shelter. He'd known loneliness. He'd been publicly rejected and ridiculed. That we've heard all from our recent study through Pastor Steve and Acts. It's a theme that's present in every one of his letters. Since becoming a servant of Christ, he seems to have experienced just about every category of suffering that there is. In verse 24, Paul shares his attitude towards suffering from a couple of perspectives. He writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Why rejoice? Because Paul knows from Epaphras' report that he, Paul, has been instrumental in making the Word of God fully known to the Colossians, verse 25. So he rejoices. Paul is suffering. He sees his suffering as a small price to pay for the eternal security of the Colossians. Paul writes in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. These present sufferings, in other words, are a bargain. Then, Paul says, and in my flesh, I am willing to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, we have to stop there a minute. Did we just read that there is something lacking in Christ's afflictions? Peter tells us clearly in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. Hebrews makes that same point five times in two chapters, 9 and 10. And in fact, Paul himself writes in Romans 6, the death he died, he died for sin once for all. So we have what is lacking and we have once for all. There seems to be a contradiction. Let's dig into two words and then see if we find a fresh perspective. The Greek word translated that which is lacking or what is lacking, depending on the version you have, is a noun. <clears throat> and it means something that is deficient. Something that comes in behind. Something that is lacking. Pretty straightforward. The second word, translated afflictions, is used 45 times in the New Testament. And almost all of them, it's translated either afflictions or tribulation. When we think of those two words in connections to Christ, we tend to plug that into his suffering on the cross. That's a natural thing to do. 
But the fresh perspective is this. This word, afflictions, is never used in the New Testament to describe Christ's suffering on the cross. Rather, it is used to refer to the tribulations that Jesus endured in the course of his life and ministry leading up to the cross. Paul uses this word deliberately to state that he is willing to do his share to address that which remains deficient in the church in terms of tribulations that continue to impact its life and ministry. Look at it this way. When John records in, in, in chapter 19, Jesus cried out, it is finished. That was a victory cry. Sin, death, Satan, his legions, all defeated in that moment. But right here in verse 24, we are confronted with an example of the already not yet character of the kingdom of God. Because while it is finished, it's not over. Already, Christ is resurrected. He's ascended. He's sitting on the right hand of the Father in His rightful place. His enemies defeated under His feet. But we, the church, are the not yet. In an equally real sense, Christ's body manifests itself on the earth in the form of the church. And the church is the only access the world still has to express its hate for Christ. So Satan, though defeated, still attacks. Paul was applying this idea to himself personally. He wanted the Colossians to grasp it. The history of the church tells us that it applies to us too. Eugene Peterson expresses Paul's words this way in the message, and I welcome the chance to take my share of the church's part of that suffering. It is finished, but it's not over. So how does Paul get these supernatural attitudes about suffering being a small price to pay and, and being so eager to endure, to endure afflictions for the, the sake of the church. Was Paul just a super spiritual guy? Let's look further into verse 25. He writes, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. It was according to God's wise allocation of resources, stewardship, that Paul was commissioned, made a minister. And so he was fully equipped to labor, to minister. The word there is diakonos, a deacon, one who serves. And though we don't see the word grace in the text, Paul explicitly states that the source of supply was according to the stewardship from God. And that supply came not as a result of any merit that Paul claimed. God graciously bestowed it on him, and Paul acknowledged his utter dependence on it. It wasn't Paul who bootstrapped the joyful attitude he had towards suffering. The attitude came from the same place 
the capacity to endure came from, God's all-sufficient grace. One of the outcomes for us of Jesus' it-is-finished victory is to set us free from two traps. One is the I-can-do-this trap. The other is I have to do this alone trap. One trap is set by ego. The other trap is set by fear, and the enemy uses them both. Because we live in the it's not over, suffering will come in its various forms, and Satan will attempt to snare us through pride or through fear. Look out for the traps. Remember 2 Corinthians 2.19, where Paul tells us that Spiritual things are discerned spiritually. The natural man can't get them. And he says, you know what? That's 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is my grace is sufficient for you. We depend on grace alone. Nothing else works. So now to Paul's suffering, we'll add Paul's ministry. We just observed that Paul's opportunity to serve was a provision of God's grace. I was made a minister, one who serves. That's what minister means. Servants of Christ are bound by their servanthood to deliver what the church requires. Stewards are those who have authoritative responsibility for something that belongs to somebody else, something they don't own. In Paul, we find the two combined. He is bound by duty to the purposes of God and enabled by privilege and sacred trust according to the stewardship from God. This stewardship assures that its resources will be both complete and well managed because it's from God. Stewardship can take on many faces. My father-in-law lettered in 16 times, 16 varsity letters in four sports in his four years as an undergraduate student. Two weeks ago, at the age of 92, he was inducted into his college's athletic hall of fame. <clears throat> My in-laws at their age, having little interest in flying, a ceremony was planned at their retirement community in Arizona, and uh, it was a grand affair. Linda helped orchestrate that. She and I and our families have known each other since we were children. We were both raised in nominal Protestant mainline homes by parents who to this day remain active in their churches. And we always go to church when we visit our families. But this trip took a little bit of a different turn. My mother-in-law has taken to previewing her pastor's sermons online. They're posted two or three days in advance. Steve, wouldn't you love that? <laughs> anyway, she announced to us that that Sunday's sermon had so little to do with the Bible that she, she felt embarrassed to have us hear it. And so she actually suggested that we go to a different church. Now, folks, these people have been active Methodists for 75 or 80 years. So this is a big deal. Well, out of convenience, we chose a Lutheran church that was about two blocks away. 
And it was a great worship service. It was Gospel Sunday. There was lots of hymn singing, and, and uh, the, the sanctuary was packed. And because it was Gospel Sunday, uh, I was saved from the stand-up, sit-down liturgy that this former Lutheran was expecting. But it was the sermon that prompts my story. My father-in-law quietly observed that he could barely see the top of the speaker's head above the podium. I was able to determine that she, Pastor Jan, was in an electric wheelchair. Her message centered on our responsibility as good stewards of God's grace to focus time and energies on our ministries rather than our personal priorities. And she had come into her disability early in her life. As an undergraduate student, she'd been given the electric chair, but had rejected it in favor of those crutches with the arm cuffs up here. And that's how she chose to, to, to get around. She went to graduate school, then to seminary, then into ministry in the church, and for 26 years, the electric chair remained parked. One day, a bishop, Lutheran bishop, asked her, Jan, have you ever considered the impact an electric chair might have on, on, on your ministry? Never. The crutches were symbolic of her determination to overcome to persevere, to prove something about herself. The bishop continued, Seems to me you could put more energy into your ministry if you didn't have to spend so much of it just getting into the office. The Spirit spoke to her that day, giving a new perspective about stewardship of her physical energy and her time. Out came the chair. And now there is a servant of Christ making a valued contribution to a vibrant faith community there in Sun City West. Stewardship. Paul also had a complete grasp of the primary activity of his ministry. He expresses it there in verses 25 and 26. He was servant-bound to fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God, articulating this now-revealed mystery of the gospel. Paul wanted to express the gospel as the complete divine provision for life for all people. And he wanted to do it in a distinctive way. He used words like mystery and riches. Listen to how Peter expresses this same idea. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same value as ours by righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them 
you may become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world because of lust. Well, Paul called the gospel a mystery for three reasons. First, he wrote that it is a truth discoverable only by divine revelation. That's the 1 Corinthians 2.14. Second, to Paul's wonder, he and Peter both discovered that it was available to pagans as well as Jews. That's laid out in verses 26 and 27 of our passage. And thirdly, every time he explored it, he found something that took his breath away. Romans 11.33 Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Paul, in contrast to Peter and to me, was inspired to brew that mystery down to just seven words. Christ in you, the hope of glory. In doing so, he defines the mystery as Christ now living his life in and through his people, who incidentally make up his body, the church. Christ in you, not a batch of rules and regulations to be memorized and obeyed, but a glorious person whose grace provides everything for life, including the certainty of salvation and the hope of glory, that joyous expectation of sharing the glory of God in eternal fellowship. We are all ministers. We are servants, we are stewards. First, we serve in obedience to our faith. Then we become stewards entrusted with the privilege of dominion over God's resources. And the privilege of dominion is fraught with temptations. And those temptations can expose our obedience to frustration. How do we avoid the trap? by recognizing that our efforts at exercising dominion always fall short of God's purposes when they are not grounded in God's grace. But Christ invites us to depend on his grace as stewards. And confident dependence comes from feeding on God's word. Like Paul, we understand that primary activities in our individual ministries include discipling our brothers and sisters in the word and sharing that word with the world, sharing that good news out. But if you're like me, you're often inhibited by a fearful lack of understanding of the word and its principles. Dwight Moody made an interesting discovery about the relationship between believers and the Word. He wrote, I prayed for faith and thought that someday faith would come down and strike me like lightning. But faith did not seem to come. One day I read the 10th chapter of Romans. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. 
Up to this time, I'd always read my Bible and then closed it and prayed for faith. Now I opened my Bible and began to study it, and faith has been growing ever since. Like Paul, Moody found that every time he explored God's Word, he found something that took his breath away. Both discovered they need not, in fact, could not rely on their own understanding. And we must not either. Let me share something with you. I had become lazy in my dependence upon the grace of the Word. Not forgotten it, just lazy. I'd read a half a chapter, then say, oh, done my duty. What's next? Next thing of the day. Ever read your Bible like that? Sometimes for me it would be literally sitting in the front seat of my car after I had gotten from the house to the dealership before I went in and plugged in my computer. I mean, I'd be sitting in the car, read my half chapter, boom. Tyranny of the urgent, call it what you will. Well, having to reconnect with the responsibilities of a faith community calling you as elder and preparing to teach a Sunday school class and preparing to share with you all this morning, those things have all added up over time for me. I love olives. I like Spanish olives, Greek olives, stuffed olives, spiced olives. And I look forward to getting home from work every day and going to the refrigerator because there's always a little container in there from Liberty Heights Fresh or someplace with some unique olives in it. I can hardly wait. Well, along with Paul and Dwight Moody, I've redeveloped a daily dependence on grace. Just like the olives, I can hardly wait. That daily exploration and application of the word is what confirms the integrity of our ministries. And we understand that word by grace. It's grace flowing out of the meditating on the word that is the bedrock of our ministry and our stewardship. Now we've already opened the subject of Paul's main work or labor, which is proclaiming the word. So lastly, we'll make a couple of observations on how Paul organizes his work and to what end. Verse 28 tells us, we proclaim Christ. Paul here has switched. This is a very autobiographical passage. Paul is talking about himself. He uses the personal pronoun I frequently, but here all of a sudden he switches to we to include his fellow workers. The word translated proclaim there is outreach language. It carries with it the idea of a public venue where many of the people present will not be Christians. That's why the next action is warning or admonishing, depending on what translation you have. Paul is acting on his call to awaken the need for Christ in every man. 
He owned that. By contrast, the very next phrase, teaching every man with all wisdom, indicates a ministry to those who are already saved, already converted. This proclaiming, admonishing or warning, and teaching was aimed at one goal, mentoring and discipling every man to be presented mature or complete or perfect, whatever you have there in front of you, mature in Christ. Paul wants all who believe to be fully prepared for Christ's return. The effort was rigorous. I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. The word translated labor there is not one of the common ones. It's kopio, and it means exertion to the point of exhaustion. Paul was intensely serious about the effort and absolutely confident that the ultimate outcome would be precisely according to God's service, purpose, not because of Paul's energy, which he couldn't count on, but because of Christ's power that mightily worked within him, Christ in us. Well, as with Paul, we don't choose our ministries. God chooses them. We then choose to labor in obedience or not. Churches get involved in many things. We have a Christian school, an excellent one. Some churches engage in, in tremendous social concerns. Others are more involved from a political standpoint. Paul seems to have limited his labors to a primary objective. Preach the whole word of God to as many people as possible, as faithfully as possible. He had an external focus to the unsaved, proclaiming the truth, and an internal focus to the church, teaching and mentoring to maturity. We have the same opportunities. They're serious responsibilities. It's hard work. Sometimes we look at the tasks and we say, I just can't do it. People will watch our families. People will watch our attitudes. People will watch our compassion, our consistency, our purity, and they will judge us. We know that confronting an ungodly world with a life lived for godliness will get a reaction. But when we link our lives to Christ in us, the same source that Paul linked his life to. Our struggles become empowered by Christ's energy. The Christian life is an active life. In various ways, we will suffer individually and as part of the church, Christ's body. We will minister, Lord willing, according to our gifts, teaching the faithful by word and deed and proclaiming the truth to unbelievers. We will labor rigorously, courageously, mentoring and discipling each other to maturity. But if we attempt to achieve these purposes, purposes of God, by the sufficiency of our own actions, we will come up short. 
purposeful achievement is dependent on but one thing, God's enabling grace. We have a powerful motive to lead the Christian life, our love of God. We love Him first for redeeming us. He paid the price that only He could pay so that we are saved. And secondly, we love Him for inviting us to be completely dependent on His grace for obedience. Christians have an inexhaustible source of grace that is ever-present, the mystery revealed, the hope of glory, Christ in us. That's how Paul did it. That's how we'll do it. Pray with me. Precious Jesus, thank you for inviting us to participate with you in the building of your kingdom. And thank you for giving us the means to do so. Your 100% sufficient, all-encompassing grace. In your name, Jesus, and to your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.